If you're tired of the superficial and you're craving real conversation about life, relationships, fears, doubts, and the divine in the middle of it, this is the place for you. My name is Anna Dimmel, and I'm a blogger, writer, and former pastor. And it's my passion to build bridges, not walls, through honest, real conversation and connection. And I want that for you. This is the show that will help you do that and give you not only inspiration and connection, but will help you leave the superficial for good and form the real connections you're craving. Your story matters, and I'm so glad you're here. Welcome. Hey there, welcome to the podcast. Today we have a fun episode. I am introducing you to a new friend of mine, Tim Rimmel. Tim is an author and a former minister of 25 years. He was also the outreach director of the ex-gay ministry Love in Action back in the 90s. And that was a ministry that specialized in conversion therapy, which we will totally dig into in the episode. He's also a contributor to the Huffington Post and the Good Men Project and a member of the American Psychological Association and the Society for the Psychological Study of Lesbian, Gay, Bisexual, and Transsexual Issues. We dig into his story and we get a look behind the scenes of conversion therapy as well as hear about Tim's new book, Rethinking Everything. Tim is so smart and so dear, and I quickly grew a place in my heart for him, and I know you will too. So before we dive into the episode, I have to, as I say every week, give a shout out to the Behind the Mirror Facebook group. I have loved watching the connections forming in this group. It has really become this safe community where people are finding freedom to free think and freedom to ask questions and discuss things that they might feel hesitant to discuss anywhere else. So if you haven't joined in, seriously, you want to be in this group. You are missing out if you're not in it. So if you'd like to opt in, you can opt in on my website, justajesusfollower.com backslash podcast backslash podcast group. You can opt in there, or you can just simply do a search on Facebook for the group behind the mirror of Christianity. Super easy. And I've also mentioned recently that I am having so much fun connecting with you guys on Instagram. If you haven't found me yet there, come say hello. And I got to say, it has been really fun letting you guys into my life because I like showing pictures of my kids and my puppy and all my things. And you know, it's just fun. And I also like giving you guys quotes of inspiration and little nuggets for the day that just remind you of all the stuff we talk about here, that you're enough, that you're seen, that you're loved, that you're known, and that the God of the whole universe is backing you and on your side. So if you haven't found me there, come find me, come say hi. And last but not least, if you are enjoying this podcast, if you're enjoying the work that's being done here, do your friend Anna a favor and go rate and review the show on iTunes. It really, really does help the podcast move forward and it does help other people find it. So if you haven't done that yet, do me a favor, go rate, subscribe, review on iTunes. All of that being said, I can't wait to introduce you to my friend Tim. So... Without any further ado, let's dig into the episode. Here we go.
Hello and welcome back to the podcast. Today we have a wonderful guest with us today. We have Tim Rimel and he is an author and a blogger and just has an interesting view on a lot of things that are hot buttons inside of church. So Tim, say hello. Hello everyone and the pleasure to be here, Anna. Oh, well, we are honored to have you. And for those of you who may not have heard of Tim, you are a former minister. You served 25 years in evangelical Christian church world. And so tell us a little bit about that journey. Tell us how you got there, what your story is. Well, I grew up in it. So I was born into the Pentecostal Church of God. Uh, My grandfather was a Pentecostal minister. My father did work as a youth minister and prison ministry. So that was really all I had known growing up. And we, my family came from the South, Midwest. Um, So that was, that was, you know, I grew up in California, but, but, but we ate like we were from the Midwest. So (laughs) It's just kind of growing up, you know, in that environment where um, it was all experiential faith. It was King James Bible, as far as my grandfather was concerned. You know, it was um, very, from what I perceive anyway, it was very traditional evangelicalism back in the 60s and 70s when it was uh, fire and brimstone with this mixture of God loves you, um, you know, as long as you don't mess up. Um, so that was that was kind of my background growing up. It was, it, the churches that I went to were very, experiential. And in fact, you know, growing up in the Pentecostal church, when I became a musician, I spent a lot of time in black churches because I learned to play more gospel music. But it was, but that was just my life. The only thing that was different was the color of the people, you know, (laughs) but but we played the same, we worshiped the same. It was all the same. Right. And so you spend your childhood, I'm like you in that, I grew up in that whole world. So it was very normal. I mean, I didn't know any normal outside of that normal. And so you followed that path and you go into ministry. And how did that begin to shape your view as far as what you wanted to do with what you thought was going to be your place in life? Well, so I became a Christian officially at the age of 15. So I had committed my life earlier than that, but I was younger. Was, we were in church. It was the thing to do. At the point that I made a conscious decision, my father had left the church because his brother, his who was his close friend, had died unexpectedly at the age of 39. And my father didn't know what to do with that. So that really sent him in this tailspin. Um, there was a lot of turmoil going on in the family, and I just thought... I have to at least put myself in church because that's the right thing to do. And I, I prayed that God would bring our family back and that we would have what we used to have when I was very young. So at that point, you know, my role kind of changed in the family. And I went to a church that was within walking distance of our house. I had started playing piano two years earlier when I was 13, which is kind of late, um, but I was very good at it. And so I just suddenly found myself becoming a Christian, being in the ministry, and things just kind of caught on fire. So Mm-hmm. Um, I really felt drawn to that. I felt like that was my calling. That's ex- that's what I wanted to do with my life. I couldn't imagine doing anything else outside of that. Um, and so that that was kind of that's what set me on this path. Uh, you know what changed, of course, was I realized when I was about fourteen years old that I was gay, and that was never in the cards for me. I didn't <laughs> I didn't plan on that. That wasn't supposed to be like that. Right. So I just, I thought I could pray it away. I thought if I just did the right thing, I prayed harder, I, you know, fasted and and memorized the Bible, that that would somehow take care of it. Um, at that point in history, we 
didn't know anything about homosexuality. Certainly for my backwoods family, we were not aware that the American Psychiatric Association had removed it as a, a mental disorder in 1973. You know, we, we knew none of this. We were just a bunch of hillbillies that got out to California and, and didn't have enough money to get back home. So growing up in that environment, I just felt like, okay, I, you know, I'm committed to God. And so God is somehow going to solve this problem for me. So that was the the thorn in my flesh that I was trying to deal with going through all of those years. And so, you know, that eventually led into uh, working in ex-gay ministry and, you know, I was there for seven years. So it, it was a, it was a long path for me kind of going on this journey. Oh my gosh. And I want to dig into that part of your journey because it's, it's led to so much of, of the work that you do now. And, um, a lot of the people that you are connecting with and reaching. And it's just, it's also fascinating to me, but going back just a little bit. So here you are in this group of people where you are realizing very quickly, okay, something's different. <laughs> I am not fitting the mold. Right. And, and I think that's a universal thing that so many of us have mm-hmm. felt, whether it's inside our faith community or inside of our family, you know, in this tight Christian worldview that, that a lot of people have, it's very easy to start to feel like you're on the outside. So, Tell us a little bit about how you dealt with that. How did you start to work your way through that? It was a lot of years. It was a lot of years of pain. I, um, my first girlfriend, I was 19 years old when, when um, we started dating, and I felt like I just needed to push through this. And what happened was it created this tremendous amount of anxiety and depression, depression, and I didn't, I didn't know how powerful the mind was. I didn't know how powerful the brain could be. So I assumed that there was just something wrong with me. And we spent a lot of time going to doctors, trying to find out what was happening. And I had dropped, I was, you know, five, I'm 5'10". I dropped to 115 pounds. I couldn't eat. I couldn't, you know, I couldn't do anything except I was just sick all the time. Mm-hmm. So um, I didn't connect the two things happening, except that I just kept trying to shove this part of me down and pretend that it wasn't there. And I, I prayed harder. I, I, fasted more, you know, it was all of these things that I did to try to fix this. Um, But the depression became so intense for me that I had attempted suicide by the time I was 24. Mm -hmm. So I learned about an ex-gay ministry in California. And I didn't realize how desperately that was, or how, how broadly that was going to change my life. This little ministry based in Centerville, California called Love in Action turned out to be one of the oldest and most renowned ex-gay ministries of its kind back in the day. And um, so I had contacted them and I signed up and I said, look, I, I just, I'm not really gay because I'm not like those people. And I'm a Christian. I'm a Christian. So I can't possibly be gay. Right. But, but I said, I need help. I need, I need something to deal with this. So I, before I went there is when I attempted suicide because, it, you know, I just thought, well, like, I'll just pray my way out of this. And, you know, I, again, back to this, doing the same thing, expecting different results. Um, so that's what led me into that ministry to finally start to sort things out. Oh my gosh. My heart just broke probably seven times while you were saying that snippet and you've wrapped it up in such a pretty package here. <laughs> and I know it's cause you've, you've come through so strongly on the other side, but gosh, my heart just breaks for what you went through. I, I can't even imagine. So you find yourself in this ministry and you are doing the Christian thing. You are all in. You are giving it everything you have. And so 
you know, for some people who may not exactly know what conversion therapy is, can you explain that a little bit? Yes. And to put this in context, this is back in, in 1990. So there, at that point, the, the, the Christian church, the evangelical church had created this term ex-gay because it was based on the Bible that said, such were some of you, First Corinthians 6, 9. And so it talks about that, you know, we believe that you couldn't possibly be gay and a Christian, or you couldn't be an adulterer and a Christian. So it was an either or situation. The ex-gay ministry started in the late 70s. There was a church, which was the first megachurch in evangelicalism in Southern California called Melody Land. And so there was a group there that were counselors. And one of the men that started that, his name was Michael Bussey, who's a friend of mine. He was one of the original Exodus uh, founders, but the ministry was called Exit. And it started because Michael also dealt with homosexuality and somebody that he worked with said, oh no, you can't, you can't be that because you're a Christian. And so they just worked on this premise of that you're ex-gay. So nothing really had happened at that point, except that we took the title of ex-gay because the two things were incompatible. So when I was in it, what it really meant is that we spent a lot of time praying. We spent a lot of time in accountability. We searched the Bible. We tried to understand why we were gay. And, and this idea is based on very old, a very old theory from Freud that said it's because of a broken relationship between a, a man and his father or a, a girl and her mother. So it's based on these uh, psychological theories that have been repeatedly proven not to be true. But as Christians, we have to believe that it has to be something because otherwise you wouldn't be gay unless there was something something that made this happen. Mm-hmm. So in the in that environment, what happens is that you get these people together who desperately want to change, desperately want to believe that this is true. And in my case, we lived in a, a house where there were 12 guys together all of these guys seeking God, wanting to change, wanting to be different. And when there's no outlet for any type of sexual behavior whatsoever, I mean, you know, it happens. It didn't happen in our house, but it does happen. Um, for me, after about four months, I didn't have any sexual feelings at all. So, so, but I saw that as God is healing me. God is taking this away. And again, I didn't understand suppression at the time. <laughs> right. So, So you just learn to adapt. You learn to do what you feel is right and you see because we believe something and then we see it is that you start to see results of what you feel are your obedience to discipleship and so that's what was happening to me during that time so it was a lot of guys that again it was pretty much what i've been doing before but i was in an environment with people who were just like me and there is a tremendous amount of relief when you're in that environment where now for the first time you're, you're seeing other people just like you. They, they understand the struggle. They know what it feels like. Um, right. You know, so there is there is just this overwhelming sense of relief initially when you're going through that program. Well, yeah, because you don't feel alone anymore. Right. And so in that program, the the goal, and I'm just totally shooting in the dark because I don't have a point of reference on this. I'm assuming that the goal is to completely remove that. I'm sure they would have called it your, your temptation or your struggle or whatever terminology they would use to remove that so that you would go on the rest of your life being different. Well, there's a dichotomy. Nobody ever says you're going to be straight. Nobody ever makes a promise that isn't, that can't be kept. And in doing so, 
you don't overtly say this is going to happen to you. What you say instead is, even if you struggle with this the rest of your life, you're still, the main goal here is to be obedient to Christ. This is what God requires of you. Mm. So while they say that, then you've got this expectation because all of these other leaders are getting married. They're in these relationships. You know, we don't know from the outside what they're actually going through. So it appears that they are healed. They are moving on. What's wrong with me? Why can't I seem to pull myself together? Um, You know, if they talk about any temptations at all, which a lot of them just didn't talk about it at all, they seem to be dealing with that. And they seem to be from outside appearances connected to the opposite sex partner or wife that they have. So that's what was going on is that it was never stated that way. It was this, the whole idea of this program is that you come here and you learn to be obedient to Christ. No matter what happens, you just have to stay true to God's word. Wow. And so you leave that environment and you get married, right? Isn't that part of your story? You get married, you have a family. And so at what point did you start to realize okay, what's going on inside of me maybe isn't matching what I'm being told <laughs> or what, what I, the way I'm reading the Bible maybe isn't the way that it needs to be read. I mean, I know that you probably wrestled with all of that. Can you give us some insight into what that journey looked like? Yeah. So I never left the environment. After I went through the live-in program, I stayed in the area for, um, well, for six more years, really, but I, I stayed and I went to John Smith, who was our director at that point, and I said, I, I would like to be the outreach director for Love and Action. So again, in context, what was happening in 1991 is that Love and Action, which had been the oldest ministry around, was suddenly getting all of this press. So we were ending up in the news and people were contacting us because of this message, which was freedom from homosexuality through Jesus Christ. So we were ending up on Good Morning America, um, ABC News, Oprah Winfrey. Um, so all of these shows were talking to us. And, and so John was saying, you know, I, I just need somebody that can handle all these calls. And, you know, and we did a program where we would go to churches and we would give testimonies. We would put on a play. We had really good music, if I say so myself, <laughs> but, you know, that, we, that we were putting on. And it, it was very emotional. I mean, it really drew people in because it was yeah. such a powerful message of where you've got this one message coming from your television about gays and they're wanting for gay rights. And then you've got this other side of the message of these people saying, no, you can change. Thank you, Jesus, that we're not like we were anymore. So we were kind of caught up in this. And I stepped into that position in the middle of this culture war. And there were television evangelists that were now referring to Exodus International, which is the umbrella organization for ministries like Love in Action, and saying, look, here are people that have changed. Mm-hmm. So, so we were on the stage now, whether we wanted to or not, we were on the stage where we had to present, this is what was happening in our lives. Never at any point, I can say honestly, as a staff, did we try to lie to anyone We were not trying to put on airs, but we were people of faith and we did believe that we had changed, that God was changing us. We knew that the conversations that we had in our office, you know, we would confess we were struggling with this or struggling with that person, or we, you know, we'd seen somebody that was really attractive. Um, And there were jokes, of course, that were made that wouldn't be made on stage. Um, But that was kind of in the environment that, that we were in. As far as I was concerned, you know, I I was there because I truly honestly believed in the message and I believed that God was healing me Um, again, because all of this was suppressed, you know, 
I didn't, I didn't feel anything at all. Um, so I stayed for, for six years after the, the program and it went into the ministry with Love and Action on, on the leadership team. Um, mm-hmm. So within that time period, I met a girl who was who attended the same church as my parents. And it happened that my parents and her parents had known each other for many years. Um, and it was the church where I was a music minister before I had gone in the ministry. So I knew the people at the church. I knew her. Um, so we started talking. We became friends. And then one thing led to another. And as the ministry was getting ready to move to Memphis, Tennessee, I asked her to marry me. She said, yes, we moved to Tennessee um, and got married about a year after that. So so that's how we ended up getting married in that very um, supportive environment. It was a very supportive environment because we were all on the same page with what we believed. Right. Yeah. And you are like becoming a spokesperson for this. It sounds like, you know, you've yes. worked your way into a leadership role and, and there's so many expectations that are on someone inside a leadership role. But it was interesting to me listening to you say all of that, how, you know, you said you guys weren't trying to lie or trying to present something that wasn't true, which from someone on the outside hearing that I go, oh, so were all of you guys feeling this way? <laughs> like, were all of you feeling like, okay. We're, we can do this, right? Like we can do this. Like, was it that kind of a, a mode where you were really trying to convince each other that this could no. happen? No, no, not at all. I, I, I you know, we're, we were very committed and, and we were very committed. I mean, the, the ones that stayed in the ministry, John Smith, who was a director, stayed there for, oh gosh, was it 22 years or 28 years? So he came out in, two, I think 2008 is when he finally left the ministry. So, and he was there before I got there. Um, John Polk, who was the spokesperson for Exodus International and also on our staff, he was the poster child for the X Game ministry. He left in 2001, but he came out, I think, in 2013. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we were there because we believed in the message. But right. life, unfortunately, or fortunately, I guess, <laughs> has a way of bringing us into reality. So for each of us, that came at different points in time and our journeys were different we all eventually came to the same place, um, you know, and that in itself is incredibly complex. So when somebody starts to come out who's been in this ministry for a long time, there's a lot of reasons going on behind the scenes as to why that happens or why that doesn't happen. Mm-hmm. So it's not as easy as you just gave up on Jesus and came out, or as I've been accused, you just wanted to have gay sex. So that's why you changed your views, right? So so it's very easy to put that on somebody and say, oh, well, well that's why. But it's very complex. There are a lot of reasons behind that. So, and that's a, that's a show all by itself. Oh my gosh, I know. Like my head was like spinning. I'm going, oh, I want to dig into that. I'm, sh- yeah, so much there. But okay, let's pick up where your story left off. So you you get married, and then what starts to happen from that point forward? So I got married. We were in Tennessee. She hated it in Tennessee. Um, we had struggles in our marriage, but she managed to get pregnant. And my child. And we, um, we had, you know, the, the funny thing is I, I never wanted kids cause I, and I was okay for a couple of years. She couldn't get pregnant. I was like, Oh, that's fine. Um, and then she got pregnant and it was the most amazing, incredible experience of my life. So we had a, a good year, you know, when she was pregnant and we had our child, um, and then things started to fall apart again after that. And she wanted to leave. She wanted to come back to California. So we eventually left. The ministry and what happened at the ministry was that around you know, we, we moved there at the end of 1994. We found in 1995 that we had moved to Tennessee because we wanted a more friendly, conservative environment. 
But what we found is that they don't like to talk about sex in the South, let alone gay sex. Right. So, so <laughs> nope. my job, nope. yeah, my job was, you know, it wasn't going so well. And, and the, the media had shifted its, its perspective. I think they had heard enough of the ex-gay uh, you know, our, our message. Mm-hmm. So they were getting more pro-gay, which of course was then just heating up the religious right to, to attack it even more. Um, so my job kind of dried up. And then I was moving into more of the role of, you know, leading Bible studies and the program had changed. It wasn't based on the relationships that it had been before, it became much more clinical. So it just had kind of come to this place where I wasn't happy um, our director wasn't happy. He was changing directions. We weren't happy with him. He was, you know, so, so we kind of came to this decision where I left and then my wife said, well, there's no point in us staying here. I want to move back to California. So we ended up going back to California and I was hired as a music director. Um, and that's how we got back here, but that wasn't going so well either. Um, at that point, this minister was, um, very much an authoritarian. He very much controlled his board. He told me at one point that um, if he wanted a if he wanted a black musician or a black music leader, he would have hired one. So he wanted me to tone it down. Wow. So there was a that's another <laughs> discussion we could have. So there was a lot of things going on in that church. All that to say that after three months, I was put in a position where I was either going to quit or I was fired. Um, and he did all of this behind the scenes, you know, uh, not telling his board, lying to my choir about why why I left. Um, so there was a lot of lot of deception things going on there. So that kind of soured me, and I and I was tired. I was getting really burnt out at that point. Um, so my marriage at that point was really bad, and about a year after that, my wife had met someone at work that she was drawn to. They began having more of an emotional affair, and she said that she wanted to divorce me. So mm-hmm. I used her affair to point fingers and say, this is what she's doing to our family. Look, what, look what's happened here as a way to really deflect off what I was feeling because I wasn't ready to say I was gay. I, I, couldn't, I couldn't face that. And she knew, in fact, I asked her this later, you know, how did, when did you really know I was gay? She's like, oh, the honeymoon. I'm like, no guy wants to hear that. I don't care if you're no, gay or not. Nobody wants to hear that. No. Right. <laughs> oh. So she decided that it was over. You know, we had managed to squeak out another kid um, in the middle of all of that chaos. And um, so she announced that she was divorcing me. And so I spent the next six years in virtual isolation, I still went to church. I threw myself into church, but that started to wane at points when I was studying spiritual warfare and things just stopped making sense to me. I thought, you know, for somebody in the assemblies of God, and that, that's where I was at the time, mm-hmm. you being gay and being divorced are two major strikes against you. You're not, you're not going anywhere. <laughs> you're not, you're not going to get a church. So I stepped back and I started asking questions. I just started wanting to know what is true. And at this point, fighting my sexual orientation, I started to cross a line between sanity and insanity. There were days I didn't know who I was. I didn't know what I was. I I would lose track of time. um, And I was fighting really hard to to maintain my belief system. I had a boss that said, you know, I was working as a, a trainer and he said, well, you know, how are you going to improve your skills? And so I, I said, well, I'll go back to school because that's all I knew to do to improve myself. Long story short, I ended up 
um, finishing my undergraduate degree and started asking, that was how I started asking questions. I was just sitting at this in a hotel room one night with this laptop in hand and I started to type a question. And the, the real question that I had when all of this was going on is I stopped, I looked at the screen and I typed, where the hell is God? Wow. Where is God? And then I wanted to know what's true. What, what is the ark true? Did that really happen? Is this story, is this a story that happened? What do we know about the gospels? I, I've been to Bible school. I'd heard how we got the gospels. At least, at least it picked up at a point that our evangelicalism kicked in and, and it was based on all of that, but I didn't know the backstory. I didn't know where all of this came from. I didn't know, I didn't know what theologians who were not evangelicals believed or taught or saw or the archaeology or the history. I didn't know any of those things. Um, And that was where things began to change for me is when I went and I did my research. Yeah, that's where I want you to dig in. (laughs) Tell us what that was like. So at that point, I was very angry. (laughs) I was I was very angry and I was starting to believe or starting to come to the, the conclusion that my wife wasn't coming back and that I w- there was a possibility that I could be gay. <laughs> so, you know, yeah. I, and I tell the story, I know you can relate to this and your audience can relate to this. When I, when my book going gay came out in 2014, I was doing an, an interview with NPR and she asked the question, did you ever at any point when you were in the ex gay ministry say to yourself, no, I really am gay. Mm. And I know I was tired. I'd been doing these interviews for a while and I really thought I was ready to handle this. But that question sent me in this tailspin where by the end of the night, I was a sobbing mess because my response to that question was, no, the Bible had to be right. Mm. It had to be right. I'd spent my life believing this, believing that the way it was preached and taught to me that it was absolute truth and there was no way around that truth. And so that's where I was stuck. And that was the reason I spent nearly 25 years hitting my head against the wall, trying to make it work with this belief that the Bible had to be right. So where that changed is when I I threw the whole thing away and I said, I, I don't believe any of this. I'm not going to, you know, I'm angry. Um, so there's, there's, you know, there's nothing, there's nothing that's going to bring me back to this. So, I was in grad school at that point because after my undergraduate, I was I was alive. My brain was alive, and I'm a very analytical person. But growing up in church, I had I had always suppressed that in order to maintain my faith and wouldn't allow myself to ask the questions outside of the box in which I'd grown up. But right. in fairness, I didn't know there was anything outside that box. Right. So, so I met a lady who was a, a Hollywood television writer in, in my graduate class, and we started having these conversations, and she was a Presbyterian. And so she said to me, Tim, you're, you've thrown the baby out with the bathwater. I think you, you've given up on God. Maybe you should take another look at this. And I was very judgmental because she wasn't, she wasn't an evangelical. She wasn't a real Christian, right? Yeah. <laughs> so, yes, the so, way is straight and narrow, my friend. Only a few. Only yes, a few. Exactly. <laughs> Only a few. So she was the one that we started talking about this. And I shared, I started sharing my life with her. I started talking about my past, which I had not talked about in several years. And from that, I, I started just kind of thinking about what that was. And there was, one, I went to this therapist once and we, and she brought up the issue of God. And she goes, Tim, when I say the word God, she goes, you just have this anger all over your face. 
<laughs> and I said, no, I don't. I don't feel anything. And she said, yeah, but we see it. You can see it. Wow. Dealing with that anger, I think, was the hardest part because it was a faceless anger. Yeah. When, when I threw God away, nobody was held accountable. There was no one to yell at. There was no one to bring my questions to. There was no one to answer me. There was, there, was, there was no response back. It was just yelling into this empty cave, and all you get is an echo. Mm. Um, so at that point, I had put that on the back burner. I had decided that I would come out, and it was very slow because then I was a very conservative Republican in, in a gay bar. And and very judgmental one at that, trying to find who I was, trying to find what my place was. And for anybody who's been in the ministry and left the ministry, you struggle with what do you do with yourself? What is my passion? Where do I belong in this world? And after all of those years, that's where I was, was trying to figure out who am I now? What does this look like? And if I'm going to come out and going to be gay, what does that look like? Because all I've ever heard about it is that it's, is that it's just a sexual thing is that you go have sex and then you're all alone and you probably end up with AIDS. That, that was what I understood of it. Mm. So there were a lot of questions to deal with. And that was at the time that I met my then boyfriend, Abel. And so he was a great guy, a lot of fun. He had also gone through XK ministry. He's significantly younger than I am. And we just started to hit it off. We're both very analytical. We're both into research. And so we would email research back and forth about different topics. We would have conversations about God. Um, you know, and he's of Mexican descent. So there was another culture. So there was all of these things that we, we just clicked for some reason. And so one night in 2012, I believe it was, there was a show by Lisa Ling on Our America. And I had learned about it. And I learned that some of my former colleagues were going to be on there, people that I knew in the ex-gay ministry. And so I was very interested to hear what they had to say, because at this point, I had not been involved with ex-gay ministry for uh, 12 years, I think it had been. Mm-hmm. I turned on the TV to watch the show. And I was so moved by the stories that were my story. These were guys that had been disenfranchised by their churches. These were men that had gone through divorce. These were men who had lost their children, which thank God I had not. And I remember pausing the show at different points and turning to Abel and saying, oh, this is what this is about. And and there's a history behind this. And the only reason I did that was because I needed to catch my breath. I needed to, I just needed to pause for a moment. Yeah. When that show finally ended, we sat on the couch and they're rolling the credits and and tears are streaming down my face. And I thought to myself, you have a decision to make. Mm. You can either close this all back up and just go on with your life and try to figure things out. Or you just need to go find some support and, and talk this through and, and deal with what you've been dealing with for all of these these years. And so I lost it. And I, I turned to Abel and I just, I just, I cried my eyes out and he just held me and he cried with me. And for the first time in our relationship, I began to open up about my experiences with 
being in the ministry. He had he had no idea. He had no idea of, of the involvement that we'd have with the ministry or, or I mean with the media and all the things that had happened all of those years ago. Mm. He didn't know the history. He didn't know where I'd come from because I had cut off 20 years of my life. I, you know, on my resume, it didn't start until the year 2000 because I didn't want to talk about my years in ministry. I didn't want to talk about the ex ministry. I didn't want to have to explain any of those things. And I was so ashamed of feeling like I had failed. And I was the only failure of an ex-gay that I knew because in this shame, I didn't talk to anybody. I didn't talk to the former leadership. I didn't talk to friends that I had. I felt like I was the only one that had messed up. Mm. As it turned out, <laughs> our ministry director, John, was coming out. He was had had a change of heart. He'd been in the, in the media so many times and not all for good reasons in the years that I had left. But things had started to come apart for him as well. And he, like a lot of ministries did, was hiring a psychologist and they were trying to legitimize this idea of changing people to straight. And so he and I had Hour, you know, hours. We spent hours on the phone talking with each other, reconciling with each other, and just you know talking about the past and putting things together. I found an amazing therapist who's still my therapist to this day, and and I tell the story in the new book. Is that I remember walking into his office and sitting on the couch, and he did the typical, you know, how can I help you? What are you here for? And so I just went. I just took a deep breath and I just started to just vomit all these these emotional experiences and my experience with the ex-gay ministry on him. And I remember at one point, he, he stopped me, he held his hand up and he said, Tim, breathe. Mm. And that moment, that breath turned a corner. And... From then on, I began to take things apart piece by piece, and I went back, and I looked at how I felt. I looked at what it was like growing up in the evangelical church, being the kid that wore business casual to try to keep it together, being the kid that had to have his hair a certain way or talk a certain way to project the image that he wanted to be instead of the person that he really was. So it's, it was from that moment on that things began to change. And in fact, the book Going Gay came out of that process. It was very cathartic for me to start to write this. And I wrote that book in a way that somebody could pick it up who comes from a conservative background and they could see what it was like for me to walk through as a conservative person from to, to being this, you know, far right Republican um trying to hold it together ex-gay to finally coming out and changing everything that he believed after looking at the facts, looking at the issues and just trying to find his own authenticity. So in this book, and, I, and people have commented on this too, is, it, is that I come across very judgmental at times because that's what it was like at that moment in time. When I, when I saw somebody who didn't exude what I considered masculinity in a gay bar, I was incredibly judgmental towards him. And that, that was what I felt because growing up in that faith, as you know, men are men and women are women. And so I had to, I had to go through and, and look at the, the science behind what that really meant for me to, to deconstruct it brick by brick and rebuild the foundation of what would become the most authentic life a person can live. Oh, okay. I was crying a couple times during that because it, 
even though our stories are different, I so relate oddly enough to your story in that I, I identify with that, with that moment of, okay, I've been surviving for my whole life and now I am finally letting it all out. And that, that moment, like you described on the couch, you know, where you just, it's like all of that survivalistic stuff just couldn't bear to be there anymore. It had to let down and it had to come out and you had to be real with yourself. And that is such a powerful moment. Um, so tell us a little bit how you were able to, cause I know you, do, you talked about how you had to deconstruct so much, which I mean, I'm sure we could talk hours about that, but specifically, you know, you had to deconstruct a large part of your identity. So how do you how did you do that? Because you had been filled with all these Bible verses your whole life telling you what had to be right. And I think you even said that, you know, that the Bible right. couldn't be wrong. And so you're now facing this idea of looking at that differently. How did you walk through that? That's been a, a long process. And I, I would say that that process is not quite over yet. Um, I don't have Bible verses coming to my mind anymore like I did. Um even as a parent, though, raising my kids, my children were actually in a private Christian school until they were in sixth and eighth grades, respectively. And it, one of the things that that changed for us is that as I was getting more comfortable with who I was, I'd actually been teaching there and I had to sign a document saying, you know, you don't look at pornography, you're not gay, or, or you you don't participate in homosexual activities or something, something very specific like that, which I signed. But, but... You know, our friends started to know because my wife was was um, friends with a lot of these people. And, of course, we knew a lot of the parents. So, of course, they knew it. And so I, I thought things were kind of getting back to the school. But one night we were there for open house and I walked through one of the rooms with our, our kids, my ex-wife and I. And something there was a, a scripture verse hanging from the ceiling. And I can't remember exactly what that verse was, but it said something along the lines of I'll love you as long as you're obedient to me. And that just hit me the wrong way. And I grabbed whatever daughter was closest and I grabbed her shoulder and I said, I want you to know that God loves you no matter what. You're worthy of love. He loves you. Mm-hmm. And I felt like we're leaving. We're not, we can't do this anymore. We need to, we need to leave the school. We need to be someplace else that's more progressive and open where I can feel more comfortable. Um, so for me, that process was again going back and I and I did a lot of writing. You know, after writing Going Gay, then I got picked up by Huffington Post. I was writing for a lot of you know other publications, um, and I started looking at my politics and I started looking at racism and white privilege and all of these things that are ingrained in us in the evangelical church where we don't see it, we don't know what's going on, and and then it was just you know where where did this idea of God come from? So. I, you know, I had figured it out for myself and mostly I had studied homosexuality, the science behind it, the science behind ex-gay, why we did it, where, you know, when it, when it became something, how it became what it was. There's a fantastic book, by the way, um, called Walking the Bridges Canyon by a friend of mine, Kathy Baldock. Absolutely amazing. If somebody's struggling to find out how the church deals with, why the church deals with homosexuality the way that it does, all of that is explained in this book. She's got a second book coming out that is phenomenal. Um, that book kind of sent me back to, to figure out why there was, you know, the connection between my family's church, the evangelical church and how we got to California and the history behind how we got here and the history behind evangelicalism, which didn't start until the 1700s. 
Um, you know, so this belief that our religion is the only one and that it's, it has been in existence since the time of Christ is not true. Um, so it was looking at that. It was looking at the development of e evangelicalism, the development of how it went from the 1700s to the 1800s to the, the chasm that split the modernists and the fundamentalists in the early 1900s um, or the 20th century, actually. So for me, it was taking that apart. And then when I wrote um, Rethinking Everything, which is coming out this fall, I did a deep dive into that and I got much more specific. So going into that and again, delving into, I wanted to know where did, where did God come from? Where do we see this in, in archaeology and history? And I started way back, you know, 100,000 years ago, 150,000 years ago, where we start to see ritualism. And then I started to see that it does progress. You can see a progression through history and archaeology to where there is religion, there is politics. Those two go hand in hand. So when it first started to develop was when, um, the political leaders were also the religious leaders, and that was bringing a cohesive group of people together who who were not cohesive at the time, right? They, they weren't family. They weren't the, the small tribes that they used to be. So you brought them together, and thus saith the Lord. And so, of course, we have to do what what God is saying. And then you see it immortalized once writing comes, writing appears on the scene about 5,000 years ago. Um, and then you start to see things progress in a different way. So again, many, many shows that we could talk about this stuff. But for me, that was where I was like, okay, I, I get it now. Now I see where this progression is. The thing is, though, we cannot prove God's existence one way or another. We can't say that he, there's no proof that he does exist. There's no proof that he doesn't exist. The question is, how do we believe in God? And my perspective on that is that God embodies all truth. And truth is subject to scrutiny. So if we are true believers in truth then we're able to scrutinize that truth without fear, without question, without the worry of our, our foundation is going to fall apart because our foundation is our truth and our foundation is authenticity. So the only thing that's going to shake us up is when we're not being authentic. If we're not being authentic to ourselves, then we're going to struggle to scrutinize truth. Mm. And you know, when you, when you mentioned, I, I'm a lover of history, by the way, so you've captivated me on that on that caveat there. When you mentioned how you were questioning, you know, is the Bible true? Is the Bible not true? And then you talk a little bit about the history of just Christianity overall inside of America, inside the culture we know here. Mm -hmm. You know, that's something that has been asked over and over again, every couple hundred of years about all kinds of topics, because the Bible is so quote unquote, black and white about so many things that over time, we evolve out of. <laughs> yes, right. So, you know, we have this history of doing exactly what you're talking about, this history of wrestling with the text and looking at it with a critical thinking lens and saying, okay, so if we're going to be authentic, like you said, and we're going to look at this now from that angle, what do we say about it now? You know, and thankfully, we looked at slavery differently. Thankfully, we looked at women's issues differently. You know, thankfully, we have progressed so far off of so many black and white truths inside of the text. So I just wanted to mention that for our listeners, because I think we forget sometimes that this is a, a pattern we've been in the whole time. Yeah, and, and you're right. And, and it has changed and it will continue to change. And I think we're in a new era now. Uh, I know a lot of people that are in the um, LGBT Christian movement, and there's a lot of things that have 
progressed and changed and you're seeing these movements pick up. You're seeing evangelical churches that are saying we're, you know, we're going to, we're accepting LGBT people. They can share in leadership. They can be in our choirs. They can, and they can be open about who they are. So that's a, a massive change. And quite honestly, I never thought I would live to see that day coming from, you know, from where I came from, yeah. but you're right. You know, we still do it. I, I mean, we still, racism is a massive problem in America and it has its roots back in, in the church. Um, right. You know, I mean, that's the civil war. That's, that was the problem with the civil war is that they don't want to give up slavery. And, but you can't talk about slavery in the church without talking about um, the corporate world, which is, you know, which has combined now with the religious right. And we just have mass incarcer- incarceration, um, you know, so it's, it's continuing. It's just continuing, continuing differently. And we're still putting the God label on it. We're still justifying it. And there are no scriptures in the Bible that condemn slavery. So there's always a way around something. You can interpret the Bible to say anything you want, because again, we believe first, and then we find things to back up those beliefs. Right. Okay, so I'm going to ask you a question that I know is ringing in the heads of probably a good portion of my audience. And that question would be, okay, I hear your story. I'm resonating with what you're saying. But what about all of these people that are now getting really loud with their books and with their testimonies of saying that that it worked for them, that they are no longer gay, that God healed them, set them free? You know, help help us connect those dots. That's a great question. So here's what happens in that, in that world is that, first of all, there, I have a friend of mine who worked for a family research Institute and she back in the day, um, she's actually since come out. She's, she's, um, bisexual, but she's married and has stayed married. But she said that when she was in that environment, one of the things that they would say, especially when you would have inevitably have one of those people fall was that ex gays are a necessary evil. So they would put that up, they would tout them, and if you go back in time, and you can look back to when I was involved, and then even past that in the 1980s, you'll find the stars, you'll find the stars of the X game movement, and then you'll see that a few years later, three years, five years, 20 years later, they disappear, you've got a new set that comes behind them. They're the, the 20-somethings are attractive, they're charismatic, they, they do what we did. So it's this revolving door of people that are going through this. Mm-hmm. So... And the other thing is you have to ask the question, what is change? If you're saying that I'm changed, what exactly does that mean to you? Because in that environment, we change the definition of the word change. Let me give you an example. Last year, uh, gospel singer Kim Burrell had made a statement about um, gay people. And she basically said that they were demonized or something along those lines. And she was actually set to appear on the Ellen DeGeneres show when the movie, The Hidden Figures came out. She was going to sing something with Pharrell Williams. Yes, I remember this. Yes. Yes. So Ellen kicked her off the show, said, no, you're uninvited. And I wrote an article to say, hey, Kim Burrell, here's why what you said is a problem. And I talked about how how she's demonizing this group of people that, you know, you don't understand the story. You're not helping anybody. You're not showing love. You're just perpetuating this idea that you're of the devil. I got contacted by an unlikely source of hers from that article. And he said, hey, you know, can you just write something? Kimberell's a really great person. This is what she did for me. And so I said, well, you know, so he sent me a a piece where he was on the news and it was talking about how he was standing up for Kimberell and that he was a very effeminate young man. And in that news story that he sent, it 
referenced an older story where he was in, where he was transgender and where he was homeless. And so this is where the story picked up for me is that when he started talking about his life, I started asking him questions. I said, look, you know, let me, let me ask you some questions about you. I said, how did you get to know Kim Burrell? Why were you there? And so he told me his story, which was that at a time when he was down and out, he had been, he had gone to the church. Um, It resonated with him and that Kim took him in. They took care of him. He was now dressing male, but if you look at his social media, he was presenting at, you know, was his, his, his pronouns were they and theirs. He wasn't even identifying as male on the pronouns. And then his name was this gender mixture. It really wasn't one or the other. Mm. So I said, how, you know, tell me a little bit of your story. So he said, well, I went to church and that's where I got delivered. And I said, can you explain to me what you mean by delivered? And so he kind of skirted the, the issue. He didn't really answer the question. And I said, I said, so when you say delivered to them in your testimony, are they hearing what you're saying? And he said, well, you know, God makes it, he quoted a bunch of scriptures to me and he said, this, God makes it simple. So we don't have to ask questions. We just know that God has delivered us. And by the, the, the long, we went back and forth for quite some time. I heard what he wasn't saying. I've, I've interviewed a lot of ex-gay people yeah. and we present this image that, again, we want to believe this. We need to believe this because if the Bible's wrong, then that means we have to take apart our own foundations. And that's incredibly scary because where does that leave us? Right. So this is the same that you see with a lot of ex-gay people is that you change the word change. When you're saying change, God has changed me. It doesn't mean that I'm straight anymore. It just, it just means that I am struggling and God has helped, God has given me grace or God is helping me through it. Or as in many cases, I've suppressed this. I pushed this down. I can tell you that of the, of the many, many, many people that I've interviewed that I've known who are friends of mine, who some of whom are still married is that there are backstories that are not public that, I, and I wouldn't out anyone. I wouldn't share their stories, but there's a lot of stuff going on behind the scenes that is not seen in the church. I can't say that that happens with everyone. I certainly can't give you statistics because when you start talking about sexuality, a lot of that stuff, we, we present what we want to be presented. Right. The only true way to test somebody is with a physical test where you hook them up with their genitals and then you present pornography or something in front of them and then you can get a physiological response. There's not a long line of people waiting to take that test. <laughs> no, no. So this is about belief and belief again is very powerful. What happens is that when you go through life and your biology is screaming at you that I have to live in my authenticity and we typically see this psychologically, we start to see that around middle age, late 30s, 40s, 50s. I've talked to guys that were in their 60s and 70s that have written to me and said, I can't do this anymore. I'm married all these years, but I just need to tell somebody that I'm a gay man and you know I've been acting out or I've been doing whatever. So just because they present the story doesn't necessarily make that true. And in fact, according to the research, there is not a single stitch of evidence to show that anybody has ever changed their sexual orientation. Really? Not a single one? Not a single one. There's nothing out there. So what do they have to stand on? I mean, I guess these people giving their testimonials in the revolving door, like you described, I mean, is that all they have to work on? Right, right. It's a system of belief. I mean, you know, again, God is a system of belief. So, so the question is, and and again, the question is not, does God exist? The question is, how do we believe God exists? And the way that we believe God exists can be many different ways. There's over 41,000 different sects of Christianity alone. 
So for us in the evangelical world to say, oh, well, ours is true, but theirs is not, mm. is not only arrogant, but we're deceiving ourselves because there's there's no way to there's no way to prove that. It's it's just a belief. In my work, in, in my graduate work in, in studying cognition and how we learn is that we develop a system of beliefs and it, it, that's how we relate to our world. So when we see something, we have a story in our minds that we've created. And when we find something that fits that story, or at least we we turn it to a way that's going to fit our narrative, there's actually a release of dopamine in our brains that says, oh, yes, that's true. That's the piece of the puzzle that you're missing. So those aha moments is that dopamine that's saying, yes, that's true. Oh, that resonates with me. That's what this must mean. The problem is that it's difficult to change our minds because the, the dopamine reward is strong and it, and it just reinforces this belief system that keeps us locked in to where we feel very secure in that belief system, thinking that way is right. And what happens then is that when we get confronted with these conflicts or these things that are different than our belief systems, that makes us uncomfortable. That's that cognitive dissonance that says, I, I believe this, but I'm seeing something that doesn't quite match up that belief. And so we we immediately explain that away. So that's the reason I get these emails that say you're going to hell or um, you really, you know, you, you never were a Christian. I got I get that a lot. Um, when I was in the ex-gay ministry, I got emails from gay people who said, oh, you you were never gay in the first place. Right. So so those are the stories that we tell ourselves to quickly and easily put this aside. We don't have to deal with anything complex. We've made up our mind. This piece of information matches what I believe to be true. And therefore, this is an explanation. Right. Gosh, I could just keep picking your brain for hours. This has just been fantastic. So to catch our listeners up to speed, can you tell a little bit, just a short little snapshot of what your life looks like now, currently? Well, I'm a dad and I have I have a daughter who's uh, a sophomore in college and another daughter who is a senior in high school, barely. Um, and so we're just your normal family. I'm very boring. I'm very, very boring. Um, I have a husband. We've been married for about a year. We've been together for almost nine years. Um, he is so funny. He's he's just a hoot. He's, he's so much fun. Um, he's a, he actually is a teacher for the blind. So besides being an incredible person, he's one of those that just makes you feel horrible about yourself because he actually does teach the blind. So, <laughs> so you know, I, I'm still, I'm still, in, you know, I talk with my ex-wife. She lives about a mile and a half from me and we've raised our kids together. We have different perspectives sometimes. She has her issues. I have my issues. Um, but we're incredibly proud of our, our oldest daughter who's finish her, finishing her degree in psychology way ahead of schedule. Um, she's at this point plans to go to vet school and become a doctor. Um, so, you know, we're very, very driven. We absolutely love intellectual stuff. We read a lot of books around here and so, and have a stupid sense of humor. Oh, I love it. I love it. And I did a little, a little research on you and I saw pictures of your daughters and they are beautiful. Absolutely stunning. Yes. So tell the listeners where they can find you. And and you did mention it, and I'll give it another pitch here. You have a new book coming out called Rethinking Everything. And then, of course, you have your other books. And the one you mentioned also was Going Gay. And that is your memoir. Yes. And, um, fantastic. So can you tell our listeners where to find you, where to find your books? Yes. So they can go to goinggaybook.com and they can find the book there. It is orderable on Amazon, Barnes & Noble. Um, there's an ebook version available. I'm trying to get the audiobook out as well. 
Um, they can also go to rethinkingeverythingbook.com and sign up for the newsletter. So I'm giving updates as to what's happening with that book. I'm doing a lot of interviews right now. And there's a, I don't want to call it a support group. But there's a group called Rethinking Everything that I started on Facebook. And it's people that are in the same place. And it's it's people that have questioned their evangelical faith. We have you know people that are atheists, but are still talking about their faith. We have people that are gay or coming out or who are out. Um, they're kind of all over the map. People that are, are dealing with spirituality, but it's, it's a place to ask questions. It's a place to talk about your faith. And, and, you know, if you want to know what is the history, um, what about hell? Does hell exist? Where did, you know, where do we get that idea? So on this group, we talk about a lot of things and I post a lot of things. We're actually going to do a, a kind of a live get together on June 28th. So people can sign up for that. And it's the first time I've done this. I don't know if it's going to, how this is going to work, but we just want to get people together just to let them talk and talk about the things that they're thinking about or dealing about. Um, I've written a lot. So I have some blogs on my site and I, I do write a lot about, you know, religion, politics, and sexuality. So that's kind of my thing. Um, but I love to hear from people. I love to hear what they're thinking. I would love to know, you know, what their questions are. And, and let's let's talk about it and deal with it. So, um, again, RethinkingEverythingBook.com, GoingGayBook.com, my website, TimRimel.com. I'm on Twitter, at the real Tim Rimel, um, on Facebook. So, you know, look me up. Let's have a conversation. Oh, I love it. Tim, thank you so much for being on here today and taking the time to do this. Oh, thank you, Anne. I appreciate it. Yes. And you, I just have to say this, you are so authentic and so real and so honest. And that is just a breath of fresh air. And so I admire your journey of survival and I admire your journey of being honest and speaking your truth. It's just, it's admirable. So it was a pleasure to have you on the show today. Thank you so much. I appreciate that. Hey there. I hope you enjoyed the conversation today. You can find my blog and links to my Instagram and Facebook account on my website at justajesusfollower.com. I hope you join us next week for another raw, honest conversation. In the meantime, go in peace and know that you are enough.